are here at 11FS headquarters in London WeWork for episode 18 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Iran makes a move on Bitcoin, but is it all bad? France and Lysio? I don't know. We'll have to ask Colin about that one. And we have some very impassioned, very insightful interviews from Stephen Pally and the wonderful Jeff Bannon. On with the news. Welcoming back for the news is at Colin G. Platt. At Colin G. Platt, how are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, always always with the French with this guy. Um, I'm just jealous because I'm uh, monolingual. Colin, uh, big, big week uh, of news as ever in the blockchain space. Um, but first piece really is uh, is an op-ed piece that I, I want to talk to uh, in Coindesk uh, by Chris Beniski, who's a friend of the show. Um, and the title of this one was Worse Than Tulip Mania, Common Misconceptions About Crypto Assets. Um, really interesting piece on Coindesk. Colin, can you give us the synopsis here? Yeah. So um, Chris has just released a, a book here where he talks about how to value crypto assets, which um, if, you, if you're really into trading these things, definitely worth uh, buying this book and checking it out. Um, but he gets into a few different things where he talks about uh, some of the main themes and particularly picked up on um, how he sees there might be an age divide um, in this with a lot of prominent people and uh, not mentioned in the post, but came out this week and worth mentioning Warren Buffett sees these things as a bubble. We talked about Jamie, Jamie Dimon ad nauseum about these things. He really sees that um, tokens are themselves in an innovation, not just blockchain, which is fantastic uh, that he's so out about that. Um, so he sees these people saying, well, it's all about blockchain and not Bitcoin, which is a mindset kind of firmly stuck in about 2014, 2015 as really missing it. Um, and these happen to be the people that talk about it in the same terms as uh, a bubble akin to tulip mania, hence the name of it. And um, Colin, I want to link us back to as well, we covered on last week's show and the week before uh, that the CEO of Swift actually came out in his opening keynote at uh, Cybos, which is the bankers conference every year, um, actually directly comparing crypto, crypto assets and Bitcoin to tulip mania to raucous applause from a room full of suits in their late 40s, early 50s. Um, and Chris uses the term in this post, boomer biases, um, which is, speaks to baby boomers um people of a certain age um and the memes that they have such as we love blockchain not bitcoin and it's tulip mania which are used to kind of cover up a, a lack of understanding of the subject i mean is this a real thing or, or have these guys got experience here that we, we should be taking heed of uh, it's it's a little of both right um so there's obviously new and big different things that are arising because of these technologies um, but there are a lot of real world practical considerations that these guys have been around for a long time. So I, I think that the, the real answer of where these things goes lies somewhere in between the, um, everything's going to change and be disrupted because, uh, Bitcoin, because Ethereum, because you name it. And the practicalities of trying to run a money services business or trying to run, uh, I don't know, trade finance or, uh, tracking diamonds, anything that, might be um, put up there as wanting to put this on a blockchain may or may not benefit from tokens. And at the end of the day, regardless of what the technology is, we have to consider some of the laws, some of the practicalities of doing these businesses and running things properly. I think that's fair, Colin. If I'm trying to build a blockchain business, the technology is still early. 
Right. But, and, and whilst it's still early, Bitcoin's reached another all-time high this week of $6,345. Just two weeks ago, we talked about it topping 5200 Like You can see why people look at this and go, ah, it's a bubble. But also, if you were to look at, I guess, the relative share price growth of a Facebook or a Google long before they went public, you could argue they were bubbles too. So sometimes successful things look like that. And some of the things in this market will be bubbles and will be scams. So so there's an element where they're right and they're wrong. And I just wonder if that nuance and that narrative needs an update from love blockchain, not Bitcoin, and it's not ready. I mean, you could argue this technology is not 100% ready, but the keyword missing is it's not ready yet for mainstream adoption at scale, but it's getting there. Um, Colin, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think I, I think there's two things here. So first is absolutely it's not ready yet, um, but there are signs that we're getting there. Um, uh, the other thing is let's pull ourselves away from only looking at the prices, the, the driving statistic, which I think is is very easy for us to do. Um, it's great that the prices are going up, but let's look at a myriad of other numbers around adoption statistics. Absolutely. The, speaking of adoption statistics, people are talking about, I think it was uh, 30,000 uh, wallets per day or per week. Um, I'll have to cite the source for the show notes uh, being added by one of the major uh, wallet brands. Uh, the absolute phenomenal growth in wallets is is seen as what's driving uh, a lot of the price rises at the moment. And people are basing um, projections and projections even of uh, end of year price. Um, it, even uh, some people are talking about $10,000 by the end of the year um, and, and wearing funny costumes. But I, I do think there's something to be said to this um, boomer biases idea. My personal favorite, I mean, I want to hear your favorite boomer biases, uh, but having worked in large organizations, I think we've all had that patronizing moment where some CEO comes out with, oh my goodness, these mobile phones, they're like supercomputers in your pockets. And it's like, yeah, it's 2017, not 2007. Uh, do you have a favorite, Colin? Well, my, my favorite was days working in investment banking um, where I had to sit through a presentation about how millennials are changing the IPO market. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, so listeners, get in touch at Chain Insider and tell us your favorite boomer bias, because uh, I do think this is a thing. And I do think becoming aware of your own unconscious biases is, is a really important point. Um, and I say this sitting here as a blockchain geek recording a podcast who probably has more unconscious biases coming out in that one sentence than I'm even aware of. Uh, all right, next story. One in finance magnets is that supposed to be finance magnates i'm not entirely sure this is a heck of a headline oh my goodness what a headline the government of iran is preparing to adopt bitcoin for use inside their country this strikes me as the sort of thing that fox news would just have like a scary sounds behind and alarm bells ringing and Sean Hannity would be jumping up and down at his seat. Oh my God, they got the Bitcoins now. When you actually read the article though, it says, um, the Ministry of Communications and Information Technology has conducted a number of research studies as a part of efforts to prepare the infrastructure to use Bitcoin inside the country. So they're researching how they'd use Bitcoin. I mean, Colin, do you think this is going to have real impact or, or is this just research? I mean, okay, I'm leading the witness of bit here that's kind of my opinion from reading the sentence but like could there actually be something going on here okay so let's talk about one one scenario which bear in mind this, this article doesn't talk a lot and it's probably very early days as you, as you say one of the things for people that aren't following this is um, iran as well as several other countries are put under um, sanctions by the u.s 
and the US dollar is one of the main currencies. Obviously, um, Iran is a big oil producer and oil is pre- pretty much only traded in dollars. Um, so the notion that uh, you could trade in something else that isn't monitored by a single government, something like Bitcoin, um, potentially upends a lot of the the notions and economics with having sanctions. Um, it also upends the notion that money can be can be locked um, by by any particular sanction. Um, I don't know if it will ever take place, but the the fact is, um, and why it potentially does sound scary to the the Fox News of the world is because this really could change the world order if it ever takes off. And it may not be Bitcoin, um, but the notion of having these cryptocurrencies could really change things. And this is a very acute example of those things. Colin, that's a really good point around moving away from the US dollar as a reserve currency. And it's a strategy that I think we can speculate that Russia and China might actually be looking to adopt with their own initiatives around central bank currencies. And they've actually been much more wary of decentralization and Bitcoin. Um, But I guess this report about Iran uh, kind of potentially looking at Bitcoin is not going to help with its negative perceptions. Iran, whether we like it or not, um, is still a scary word. Just uh, wonder how that one's going to play out. Next story, um, again on Coindesk, um, BTC to DLT, why aren't banks giving blockchain startups accounts? Um, So this story references a report by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, the regulator in the United Kingdom. Um, And it was really more about startups generally struggling to get accounts uh, from the banks. And as some of you may be aware, um, the banking system in the UK is really concentrated around uh, 80, 85% of all bank accounts are run by four banks, unlike the US, where there are thousands of banks and some specialist um, startups banks. But there are uh, kind of real difficulties. If if you have the word blockchain anywhere in your company, in most of Europe, um, in a lot of Asia Pacific, uh, that can be grounds for having your account shut just because you appear to be um, high risk. There are one or two sneaking through able to get accounts and specifically people who've been through the FCA sandbox program, um, companies like Navura and BlockX. Listeners, you can't see this, but our producer Matt in the background just did uh, devil horns for how awesome that is. So producer Matt, that was, that was awesome. Thank you. And I think there's just something to be said for the general cultural um, misunderstanding or issues or risks that these businesses present. And I'm not saying that everybody who's trying to build a blockchain company is altruistic and deserves an account, but generally this does appear to be very, very small scale um, account giving by big banks. Um, and it's an interesting article. Colin, do you have any reflections on this? Um, do, you, do you see this as an issue that's uh, international or is this a, a UK specific thing? Well, I, I can speak to it uh, in Late 2015, early 2016, I had exactly this problem with a large UK bank who may have employed one of the hosts of this show uh, in a former time, not wanting to open a bank account specifically because uh, we talked about blockchain, um, though we didn't touch cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I, th- I think that this is uh, more or less a, a big issue in different countries. Um, you do hear about it a lot. Um, I, I know in continental Europe, um, and I've heard about it a bit um, in Asia, a lot of them have worked on, on improving this. Even if the regulators are looking, looking past it, it doesn't seem like banks have fully caught up with it for good reasons, but a lot of it will be education. 
And I think there's no downside to being more educated on this subject. There is no downside to having a fin crime team, a financial crime team inside a bank that understands blockchain and DLT better. There's no downside to having really mature approaches to um, giving accounts to profitable companies. Uh, And yet this work isn't seen as a priority in lots of large banks because there's a culture of busy. There's a culture of there's always something else to worry about. Um, And eventually these things that they don't do end up on the radar of a regulator um, and you've kind of got to think about regulatory risk. Uh, so I do think we should we should be looking to see see more from big banks. And there are other markets, of course, Canada and Australia and others do have concentrated banking markets. Uh, so this is a problem we see in a lot of the world. Um, and I wonder if this path of regulators looking for competition and openness uh, is something that uh, would be exported to the rest of the world. And speaking of international regulators, uh, the French financial regulator, the AMF, launched a a call for information on ICOs and token sales, and they announced Project Unicorn, Colin? Uh, I, I don't know if they want to call it Unicorn or Unicorn. Um, so this is something that they, they came out with an announcement uh, this week uh, talking about um, what some other countries have done, um, really looking into ICOs and trying to figure out what is it and what needs to happen. Um, essentially, they put out until uh, December. If you are interested at all in in um, what goes on in France and ICOs, definitely worth having a look. Um, but they've said that they kind of envisage three possible regulatory routes uh, as a result of all the feedback, either promoting a best practice guide, um, shameless plug here for Simon, um, consistent with legal frameworks that already exist, maybe extending legal text to just slam ICO in where it needs to be done next to public securities offering. So they do acknowledge, much like the US, that this may be an IPO type thing, or just saying, right, throw it all out. We're going to start from scratch. Um, this is a, a really groundbreaking thing for a big European country to do, um, because they've all kind of gone into the bucket of saying, right, we're not going to touch it. It's all going into the old bucket. Or um, we've seen China just outright banning it. What I do like to see is this is very much more the Canada route of let's ask a lot of questions and try to figure it out, um, which admittedly is a bit more French uh, of ways to do things. Um, but if you're interested at all in these best practice guides, um, Simon has written a blog about this on the 11FS uh, blog. Have a look at that, um, and we will make sure we get that out to Project Unicorn. Um, and I do want to say it's quite funny as a Anglicism here that Unicorn or Unicorn is universal node to ICOs research and network. Only the French, right? God bless them. All right. So, Colin, moving away from the financial users for all things blockchain, um, there's a sign of the times here uh, when uh, there's a startup planning to use blockchain to revolutionize the coffee supply chain. So coffee, one of the major commodities for the world, uh, something that uh, has been key to the global supply chains for a number of decades. Uh, what's what's the story here? Well, let me just say... Um at first, when people started talking about Bitcoin and what you'd spend it on, it was always, you know, hipsters in shortage. Um, I like to see that they've gone one step further and they said, we're actually going to track where your coffee comes. Um, so essentially, the startup is, is trying to do that. They're saying, right, we want to have um, a step-by-step analysis of where your beans are grown and how they get all the way to your fancy uh, flat white and shortage. It is all of these things. It's a com- company called uh, Cafe X based in San Francisco. And they've got a cool little robot and they can tell you everything about where all this stuff came from because it's on the blockchain. I, I, I don't know how much real value it adds to it, but it is kind of a cool thing to say we know where everything's coming from. And it ties into a lot of IoT type things. 
it's cool from a geeky point of view. Does it really change your life? I don't know. Um, but it does very much follow in, in uh, the spirit of a, a provenance or an Everledger type, uh, looking at these things coupled with really cool um, IoT stuff. Hopefully it helps people in the world. I, I'm not quite sure I 100% get it. Completely. There's something to be said about provenance. That's a key word. Of course, uh, Jesse Baker from provenance.org has famously been on this uh, subject for a number of years. This is the idea that right now, as uh, commodities like coffee move throughout their supply chain, the way you know the farmer got paid is that a piece of paper was handed to somebody who signed a piece of paper, who handed it to somebody else, who signed a piece of paper, who handed it to somebody else. And the chances of that being forged are fairly high, and the chances of the underlying farmer not being paid are also fairly high and the ability for that farmer to get financing is pretty terrible so they are living with a lot of risk based on if their harvest doesn't happen if they have adverse weather effects they're living with a whole lot of risk so if you can give certainty that that farm really did produce that coffee you can increase the uh, likelihood that they get paid you can increase the amount of insurance products that go to them there are a lot of good use cases for, for why that is but also on the flip side you know that those are ethically supplied coffee beans because they really came from there because all of these people agreed to that being true and all of those people can see that that is true and there's an element of transparency because they're using the concept of a blockchain now you could argue you'd stick that on a big centralized database but again with supply chain whose centralized database in what country and how do i connect to it so blockchain and dlt um continues i think to shine uh in that space but where it's not shining colin there's a story on Bloomberg. There was a company that added the word blockchain to their name and saw their shares surge by nearly 400%. Yeah, th- this company did even better than Bitcoin on that day. Um, so a um, friend of the show, uh, Kedin Schuber from FD Alphaville, put out something about this as well. Um, it-, it was hilarious the way he broke it down. Um, but basically... Uh, this company, Online PLC, or as it was formerly called, um, has existed for several years, and they have kind of a gaudy website. Nobody's really sure what they do. Um, they decided that they were going to add blockchain to their name because that's what you do. And then all of a sudden, overnight, their shares went from pretty much being priced at nothing, I think 15 pence, up to nearly 60 pence uh, for really no other reason other than adding blockchain. Um, because that's what you do. It's a small, a small cap stock. Um, I don't really know if they even make any revenues. But it's, it's interesting to see that there is so much excitement in the market. I, I wonder after they made this announcement, though, if they lost their bank account with one of the big uh, UK banks. Hmm. Interesting question. Yeah, uh, they, th- this is the sort of thing that uh, the likes of Jamie Dimon and the likes of banks who aren't giving accounts adds fuel to their fire. Uh, you've got to say that this blockchain space, there's definitely a lot of dodgy stuff going on. But surely that is why regulated bodies and sensible grown up entities need to wrap their arms around it to, to stamp this out. Otherwise, it will happen. Uh, and people with the amount of people signing up for cryptocurrency wallets lately, somebody's going to get burned and there's going to be the story. Um, There's a famous story about the 90-year-old charity worker in the United Kingdom. Uh, So she would sell poppies, which um, is is the small uh, pretend flower we sell um, in the United Kingdom and in a lot of countries around the world like Canada and and Australia in memory of of people who have died in in service in in the armed forces. And at 90 years old, she was selling these things, a pillar of her community. But she was so badgered and so bothered by uh, charities who were making new since calls to her that she eventually unfortunately took her own life and sometimes it takes a tragedy like that to gain the attention of uh, senior politicians and or people uh, across 
all branches of government. And we really don't want that to happen. So let's make sure that uh, we do get our arms around it faster and sooner. Um, and as, as Kadim said, um, stories like uh, shares surging by just changing your name is probably the dumbest thing we've seen in a long time. Um, and his story on ftalphaville.ft.com is, is well worth a look. And, and remember, if you love it, just stick a blockchain on it. That's true that, Colin, true that. Um, stories that we don't have time to cover, but nonetheless found interesting this week. Um, there's only one, actually. We had, had a lot of time this week, Colin. I feel like we, we spread our wings. The story from CNBC, uh, where Hong Kong and Singapore signed a fintech deal and agreed to work together on all things blockchain and, and indeed i think they have some some specific initiatives around trade finance so we we've reached out to hkma and the monetary authority of singapore and we'll try and get some comments on this because i do think those are interesting developments given that both hong kong uh, and singapore are such huge trading ports for for the global supply chain uh, it would be logical that they have uh, have some moves there all right, Colin G. Platt, that's all for this week. Um, don't forget, listeners, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter um, at BeChain Insider, or if you just want to troll Colin um, at Colin G. Platt, like troll the guy. He's um, he's all up in Australia right now. Uh, or, or you can troll me um, for, for saying things make sense at S.Y. Taylor. Um, and if you want to pick on us personally, be my guest. I really think that Twitter troll wars are, are the future. Reminder that uh, 11FS, we're a company that um, not only bring you this podcast, but we're a challenger agency that help banks and asset managers and anybody with a challenge in blockchain and DLT to achieve more. Colin, um, we uh, we have worked on some projects together. We've had a lot of fun. Um, despite you, you being at the other side of the world, you're able to be remarkably productive. Absolute end of the world, but we made it work. We, we do. We make it work. And you're coming back to this side of the world soon. I cannot wait. Um, we will finally bring back the beers and, and all things goodness. Um, but we've got to get to those interviews. Let's get to um, Stephen Pally. Colin, you spoke to Stephen Pally about his views on the Tezos story. Oh, this is a fun one. Uh, definitely let us know what you think. So I'm here with Stephen Pally of Anderson Kill. Thanks for coming on today, Stephen. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So you have been on Twitter and on Bloomberg uh, very recently talking about uh, everything that's going down in the ICO world and recently about a, a very large ICO, uh, Tezos. Um, what can you tell us about what you've been seeing and specifically, what do you think about what's going on as, as a legal professional, but not necessarily as our lawyer? So what's interesting about Tezos, and actually I wrote something about this, I, uh, I have a blog post called Crypto Fairy Tale IRL or In Real Life. What I found interesting about uh, Tezos is we're seeing what happens when people tell stories um, that actually come to life or become real. Tezos began with a premise that uh, money that people were giving a Swiss foundation was actually a gift or contribution. And if you look at the terms of service, you see that's the case. Uh, the other um, artifice or fiction that became real is the notion that this independent foundation created by distributed ledgers, systems or service, I can't remember which, by, by the founders of Tezos, the Brightmans, it was actually an independent thing with independent trustees. And what's interesting is apparently the foundation really is independent. And the Brightmans who created Tezos and created the Tezos Foundation appear to be, at least for now, and perhaps it'll change, on the outside of this very independent foundation, which holds at this point, I think, probably close to half a billion dollars in fiat and crypto. The other interesting thing to me about it, and this is macro, the legal issues will play out, is the fact that 
money that people gave, which was a contribution in order to perhaps avoid securities laws issues, it could be that that's actually what it was. So you're seeing class action firms that are sort of circling around in the United States and, and trying to solicit uh, plaintiffs, solicit clients. Um, you know, the question that I have and I've had in looking at the allegations are whether or not they'll be able to make, uh, whether or not they'll be able to assert claims, whether or not, in fact, this notion or fiction that these things were gifts were actually gifts. So if I can kind of break that down a bit. Over the summer, Tezos raised at the time the equivalent of about $230 million, uh, million dollars, so a quarter of a billion dollars, and we talked about this on the show uh, a few times. We had them on uh, the first Blockchain Insider show. They set up a foundation, um, a Shiftung in Switzerland, in Zug, um, which is very standard practice for ICOs, mm-hmm. and a private limited company in New York, I believe, um, which – is it? I think it's a dollar. dollar. Maybe a dollar um, corp. Which employs the Brightmans. The Brightmans – uh, brought in um, a board, including a chairman, a uh, gentleman named Joanne Givers, if I'm not mistaken, who is the chairman for this Shiftung nonprofit in Zug. Now, one of the interesting things about these Shiftungs in Zug is they don't legally have any shareholders. They just have an overseeing board. So the thought was, and this was pioneered originally by the Ethereum Foundation in 2014, uh, that there would be no shareholders of these tokens, thus the theory is uh, the Zug defense. There, there are no securities if there's no shareholders. Um, obviously, with the Ethereum Foundation, these little companies, I believe some of them have, have gone to be shut down afterwards based in Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, and elsewhere. Um, only the foundations remained, and it, it employs people like Vitalik Buterin, if I'm not mistaken, or he's on the, the, the chair and the board, and this has formed a, a working project. Obviously, there's kind of that gray area, or, or we can discuss this, whether it is ever a gray area, before the tokens launched in that we've raised money, we have a bunch of money, and we're going to do something with that money, but whatever we're doing isn't ready yet. And that's kind of the state we are with Tezos. Obviously, um, this being a platform looking at governance, that would be something you'd hope that they, they really thought about. Um, but it is interesting to see in developing the product, their governance seems to have run awry. What, what do you think? Um, I, I think... Well, interesting. Uh, you said a couple of things that I noticed that were interesting. One is um, you used the term – I'm not sure if you said established, but you said that it's become a, a practice, an established practice for ICOs to set up their shiftungs in, in Switzerland. I mean the space – people have only been doing ICOs for two or three years um, and only at this scale in the last, what, year? So – I'm not sure this really; these really are charted waters, and I'm not sure this really is an established practice, and that's one of the issues. What happened was somebody, and I think I know who actually, but somebody um, had this idea, a hack or a workaround. You know what? We'll set up in Switzerland. This, we'll set up a foundation. To your point, there won't be shareholders. Because it's in Switzerland, maybe it'll be away from the SEC. It'll be harder for people to uh, – for Americans in particular to assert claims – now, the problem is these foundations actually do have governance associated with them. I'm just not sure that the people who set them up understood that. They were setting these things up as a workaround to deal with securities law. They weren't thinking about what would happen if there was a problem and if governance actually had to be uh, addressed. So I've seen recently in press reports that the Brightmans, um, they said that this this fellow Gevers had stepped down – but Gevers and one or two other board members responded that, in fact, 
in order for that to happen, for him to be removed, there had to be a board meeting under Swiss law. Uh, one of report, the reporter who wrote the story about this apparently contacted the Swiss authorities, and the Swiss, Swiss, Swiss authorities, pardon me, said, yeah, it's 30 days. So there's a notice period. So it's not that there's no governance. It's that people created a structure so they could raise money, assuming that everything would be all peaches and cream or, or nice, um, and then what happens when actually the peaches and cream hit the fan? This happens all the time. You see this as a lawyer. People set up corporations. They don't really think about what will happen if there's a problem. They don't have you know, buy-sell agreements. They just assume everything is going to work out, and they sign documents that include all sorts of you know, uh, all sorts of language that deals with different contingencies. And then guess what? The unthinkable happens, and suddenly the language is triggered. Here, the impact of that language might be, I'm not saying it is for sure, but it might be, at least in theory, these things are really gifts. It's possible that no one has any rights, and the people who, among the people who may not have rights could be the, the founders of Tezos. They are on the outside. Something else I saw um, was pointed out to me recently. Um, I can't remember who tweeted about this. Um so distributed was a DLS owns a trademark on the on the name Tezos. I don't know what other um, presumably they have other intellectual property rights in the code, and that intellectual property is something they would then sell to the foundation. Now, one of the workarounds I've read um, that's been suggested is if the foundation and DLS can't come to terms, they'll just fork the code. But can they actually do that? Was that you who pointed that out this morning? Yep. I, I think that I, I think I pointed that out to you, and that, that's how we started the conversation yeah, about coming on the show. You're right. You're right. Well, yeah. Let, let's let's go let's go back to this and say um, let's suppose these aren't securities, and there is a truly independent Tezos Foundation, a truly independent DLS. If regardless of what happens with Mister Gevers, should the board decide that they don't want to have anything to do with DLS and the Brightmans anymore? Um, ignoring the fact that they have a bunch of IP and want to really just follow that original vision that the Tezos Foundation was set up for, could someone else come in? Uh, for example, could I set up an organization with the sole purpose of developing, say, Tezos Cash uh, with the aim of following this original Tezos vision and go to the organization and say, please give me $100 million in cash, please? I mean, it seems to me that if that's the case, then um, the Brightmans don't have anything to sell. It's, it can't be both. Like, it's one or the other. Either they Either they own the stuff and it will have to be sold and if it's not sold then the foundation won't have any purpose or if it's not if the code isn't purchased then the foundation won't have any purpose or they don't actually own anything that uh, that that has intellectual that has any values intellectual property and people can just the foundation can just keep the money um and keep the cash I don't know what their agreement is with the Brightons is I'm assuming that some lawyer with half a brain wrote it but um you know Yes and no. I mean, there were some big things missing in the original legal documentation. Obviously, all of this was triggered by a, a public accusation uh, that the chairman of the board was engaged in self-dealing uh, at the foundation. And there was admission that there were no rules against this in the, the article and medium that uh, Mr. Brightman put forward. Uh, you would think that, as you say, any lawyer with half a brain would have thought to include things like this um, quite explicitly, uh, because they are trying to build the, the future structure of governance, not just mentioning um, the, the amount of money involved. Well, I don't know Swiss law. In the United States, if a trustee were appointed, the trustee would have fiduciary obligations as a matter of law. And as a fiduciary, a trustee 
um, one of the things a fiduciary can't do is self-deal. So it may be that under Swiss law, even absent that covenant, um, those duties are imposed by law. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not a Swiss lawyer. Ignoring the Swiss law aspect for a moment, let's touch on the fiduciary duties someone acting on behalf of clients or contributors, I guess, in this instance. Uh, they should owe them a very high duty of care and need to act correctly and not really screw them over. If we can try to frame it in my words, is that uh, is that correct? Um, s- sort of. So speaking from an American lawyer perspective, as a fiduciary, you have an obligation to place um, – so my clients as a lawyer are uh, persons to whom I have a fiduciary obligation. I have to place their interests above my own. Um, I can't use information that I get the, about them to my own uh, for my own personal benefit, for my own personal gain. That's what self-dealing is. Um, so, yeah, you have to place – basically the simple way of thinking about it is as a fiduciary, you have to place their obligations um, above your own. It's, it's, um, it's pretty simple in that respect. So let's talk about that in this context, uh, specifically within the Delaware-based U.S. DLS entity. If we make the leap to the Brightman's over fiduciary duty to contributors and ignoring the complications of the Swiss law, is bringing a spat like this publicly kind of a breach of those duties? Um, You know, I'm not – that's not what I think of when I think of fiduciary obligations. And I'm not sure to whom the foundation's obligations necessarily run. It's just – it's dumb is the way I look at it. You got people, you got a half a billion dollars. If you issue tokens to the world, they're probably not, people probably aren't going to sue you. Now, I don't know if some securities regulator somewhere in the world isn't going to come after you. They sure might. You probably should have thought of that before you sold or solicited donations everywhere in the world. But instead of fighting amongst yourselves now, the smart play would be to Go off to the side quietly, sign some quiet agreement, realize you could be fabulously wealthy if you just shut up, worked it out. And look, don't tell me that it's going to take you two years to create your your governance system or your blockchain. You want the half a billion dollars? Work it out now. You're smart. You're supposed to be the senior. You're supposed to be incredibly smart. You have all of this money and all this talent. Pardon my language, but fucking figure it out. You can cut out the curse word that I just issued. Oh, no, never. It is beyond belief that these people, instead of working their shit out, are going to fucking Las Vegas to Money 2020, sitting on a stage and being asked softball questions. It's a half a billion fucking dollars. Oh, my God. Seriously. Let me ask you. You have a chance to walk away with $40 million yourself and $100 million in crypto. Wouldn't you be in a fucking room in Zurich right now? Figuring all of this shit out, I just cannot believe the monumental fucking stupidity of these people. And here's something else. I'm going off a little bit. Here's something else. People that stupid, who lack that, whose judgment is that poor, you really want them in charge of this in the future? These are children. They have no judgment. You are absolutely correct. Um, There are a lot of questions, I think. These people do have a lot of intelligence, um, IQ, EQ seems to be lacking in a lot of these things, which is disappointing when we start talking about things that are supposed to be self-governing systems, the fact that it does come down to humans and the error of humans' judgment um, negatively impacts us. And it's not, uh, we're, we're talking about Tezos here, but it's not only Tezos. This is, this is a commonality across every blockchain from Bitcoin, the original uh, blockchain, to things like forks uh, and touching a bit on Ethereum Classic, uh, which happened about a year ago. How do we resolve this? Can we resolve a situation like this, specifically touching on on Tezos, 
or resigned to these spats between people always being central to these fabulous new decentralized technologies? Human spats are going to rise in any technology, new or old. And the more money you have, the more likely it is that the spats are going to be bigger and uglier. Uh, this is not something – I've been practicing law for 20 years, handling disputes. This is so typical. Here's the other typical part. Clients don't listen. So they might have been told not to go on stage and they didn't listen. I have found that the only way to get people to listen is to sometimes actually yell at them and tell them they're being fucking morons and to point out that if they do things really – if they do things stupidly, they may get into very serious trouble. I, occasionally doing that gets you fired. It doesn't always make you friends. But these people need some actual – somebody needs to sit them down and just <laughs> like talk a little bit of seichel, a little bit of sense into them. Because um, what I'm seeing isn't anything new, but I know how it ends. And, you know, here's something else. Going to the press and calling somebody a thief or a crook and then changing your story, which I've seen, it's not wise. And it, it's This is somebody they picked and who two months ago they said was great. So if they think he's a thief and a crook, how did? Why didn't they figure that out two months ago? It reminds me of, um, you know, I was at a, I've been at a couple of law firms that that didn't do so well back in the uh, in the last crash, and this thing would happen where lawyers would leave and management would say, oh, that guy was a piece of shit, they didn't have any business, you know, that that guy was a piece of shit, they didn't have any business, and after a while you'd be like, finally they'd say it, and you'd be like, well, that doesn't make any sense either. Either you're lying and they had a lot of business or you're a moron because you overpaid them, right? So when I hear somebody say that guy was a piece of shit um, and you'd said two months ago they were the greatest thing since sliced bread, I think you're probably either lying or you're a moron. Powerful words. So bottom line here, um, I had always heard smart contracts, DLT, we're going to put lawyers out of a job. Do you think <laughs> that's the case? No way. I'm going to be the last buggy whip, ma buggy whip maker. I'm a litigator too, so um, and I like making things, and I like I like kind of a bad amateur programmer. I I think that software automation is cool. Um, I see a lot of great potential in blockchain. These are growing pains. Once people realize that if you're dealing with real money, you need to actually have real agreements, and you cannot make stories up. All this shit will get sorted out. There's some very very cool work being done um, by you know I think what Vinay Gupta is doing with Materium, for example, is very cool. And they have a very nuanced, sophisticated understanding. I think, um, I mean, I, I think there are some other projects out there um, that I think are very, very cool too. Uh, one project that I'm aware of um, that uh, may help folks with real-time uh, payment of wages, interesting as well. There's um, a lot of great potential out there. Unfortunately, um, this space has become um, overgrown with people who are looking to make a fast buck and who aren't thinking through the complicated issues like what happens when you have the half a billion dollars. So I wish these folks well. I mean, I know I kind of sounded off a little bit, but it's frustrating to see all of that wealth sitting and potentially being squandered. I mean, by wealth, I mean intelligence too. True words have not been spoken. Uh, I think we wish them all well and hope that they can move past this um, so that this fabulous new technology can find its place in the world. As I said earlier, uh, lawyers and probably bankers will still be involved in this mix going forward. And I don't think we're quite ready to move to total crypto anarchy where it's all managed by computers. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on today. It's Steve. my pleasure. 
Great to hear from Stephen there. Clearly has some pretty strong feelings about the Tezos case. Um, maybe for a little bit of balance, uh, I spoke to friend of the show, Jeff Banman, to talk about testifying before the SEC, um, the SEC, of course, in the USA, on Bitcoin and ICOs to see, is the USA a great place to do business if you're thinking about launching an ICO? Over to Jeff. We are here with Jeff Bandman. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Uh, how are you, sir? Uh, good morning, Simon. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. You're welcome. So Colin and I are delighted to, to welcome you back. Um, Jeff, can you just remind our listeners uh, who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. Uh, I run my own strategic advisory firm in New York, focusing on uh, kind of fintech, blockchain, regtech, and working with uh, innovators, both from uh, large firms and, and, and startups, smaller companies. I am a former regulator. Uh, up until recently, I was at the CFTC, where I was fintech advisor to uh, Chairman Giancarlo, and also helped to launch Lab CFTC, which was the first uh, innovation lab from a U.S. market regulator, and also chaired uh, staff and international regulator working groups looking at blockchain and DLT. So a lot of knowledge on blockchain and DLT, a lot of knowledge on regulation, and there's been a lot of activity in that space recently when it comes to blockchain and regulation, as we've seen the ICO boom, we've seen cryptocurrency really explode in price. Uh, and I guess a lot of activity there. And the first bit of activity I wanted to uh, really mention was the SEC Advisory Committee testimony that you made. Uh, and you made some really interesting points. Um, tra- you said traditionally, regulators have regulated the entities themselves that are registered in markets, uh, rather than uh, particular models or um, you know, focusing on the activity. So they regulated the the company in some cases, or, or the organization rather than the activity. Why do you think that was? And why do you think blockchains and DLT changed that? Right. That's a, a great question, Simon. And, and, you know, I would say that, um, you know, there are not absolute bright lines in this, but let me try to unpack a bit what I had in mind. So, uh, you know, in the historical model, uh, where you had more sort of a centralized as opposed to a decentralized framework, uh, then uh, regulators could focus on, you know, kind of these centralized uh, organizations that were uh, operating in the space. And so, for example, with, uh, you know, with trading, you could look at exchanges. For example, with uh, clearing and settlement, you have clearing houses. For example, with lending, you would look at banks. You know, so they would look at the activities of those organizations and make sure that they had safe practices and controls, and that there was investor protection. But they would look at it from the perspective of these were organizations that went through a well-defined registration process. And they could focus their attention on those organizations, the leadership of the organizations, and the responsibility of those. Now, with this new technology, which is decentralized and very disruptive, one of the features of it is that it creates enormous new capabilities. And frankly, in combination with other technologies, you know, big data, the cloud, so that these activities, which were formerly centralized, can be dispersed. And so, for example, trading, instead of taking place on a centralized exchange, can take place in a decentralized way over a peer-to-peer network. Things like lending or funding, which previously took place through, you know, an initial public offering or through a bank, are now being done through, you know, crowdfunding or through these ICOs that we're going to talk about. So these activities are now dispersed. Um, And so... 
you know, I think we're, you know, moving in a direction where regulators, in addition to paying attention to the historical traditional centralized entities, will now have to look at the activities. And the activities are being done in many cases by disruptors who only do a single facet of the type of action that the, you know, traditional entities did. Uh, and so, you know, I think this is starting to require adaptation by regulators, and we're going to be seeing more of it. It used to be easy. I used to be able to point at somebody and go, you keep your act together, do these things. Oh, right, you've done them. I can measure you. I can manage you. Now, there's a lot of people doing those things and in a lot of different jurisdictions sometimes as well. I mean, um, cryptocurrencies and uh, ICOs and token sales are international in nature. Does that also change the perspective? So I think that's a great point, Simon, that, that you know, many of these uh, activities are borderless or it's really hard to point to a location. You know, where is Bitcoin? Where is Ethereum? Some of these things are distributed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fairness, you know, these are not completely novel uh, issues for financial regulators to be worried about. You know, the, the uh, capital markets are, uh, financial markets are very interconnected globally. You know, for, for years we've been going through, uh, you know, te- te- technology, electronic trading, uh, you know, globalization in that sense. But with these new uh, decentralized technologies, uh, you know, from, from the blockchain and distributed ledgers, I think that's taking it to a, a whole nother level. And, you know, you sort of combine that with some of the peer to peer activities that really started in the, you know, in the late nineties with, uh, you know, uh, innovations like, like Napster. Um, but, you know, this is enabling a whole new level of p- distributed peer to peer activities that is sort of taking place nowhere and everywhere. So it, it presents th- these are challenges that governments have been dealing with, but I think the new technology is taking that to a whole new level. It's moved from just being communications and data and content really into the core of financial services, which kind of changes the jurisdictions and the the regulators that would do, but governments broadly have been wrestling with those issues. It's an interesting interesting point. Um, Moving us to something else as well, I think especially in the cryptocurrency press, that the SEC specifically in the US are very anti-innovation and and really against it. But actually, as you look internationally, you see that uh, China have been sort of uh, really uh, quite aggressive in their approach to stamp out a lot of activities, whereas uh, Japan have been quite welcoming and, and several other jurisdictions are somewhere in the middle. Where do you think the USA is on that spectrum? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question, and and I, I you know agree first of all with the general premise of the question that you know there really is a range of views being taken by regulators around the world, and you know one end of the spectrum you you have those that are you know just an absolute prohibition on on these activities, uh, then at the other end of the spectrum you 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 see some that are. Um, you know, really, you know, go, going further than, than welcoming them and, and maybe sort of in, encouraging activities to migrate there as a form of sort of business development. Uh, you know, I think there are concerns that that could be inviting a type of regulatory arbitrage, you know, that could uh, work against investor protection. Uh, you know, I actually am, am very optimistic and, and bullish on, on the response being taken by, by the U.S. regulators. Uh, you know, it's not monolithic. Each regulator has its own jurisdiction and tends to stay in its own lane. Uh, you know, the SEC gets a lot of focus, um, you know, because 
Uh, you know, first of all, the name ICO sounds a lot like an IPO, an initial public offering, which the SEC does, you know, re- regulate. And, you know, there are attributes of these uh, token sales that that have attributes of public offerings. I, I think the SEC has, has done a very effective job of balancing, you know, its responsibilities to promote, uh, you know, innovation and promote competition in our markets, but at the same time, uh, balancing that with, you know, transparency and investor protection. Uh, you know, I really thought, and we spoke about this, you know, a few months ago when it happened, but, you know, when the SEC, you know, may put out their report of investigation about the, the Dow token sales, you know, explained that they were securities and why they were securities, I thought that really did a great deal to promote legal certainty. And I thought that really helped the market. It, you know, for observers, you know, and listeners to your show, I don't think anybody was surprised. Um, but I thought that that really helped. And I, I, you know, I think other regulators have been monitoring it and, and really trying to listen. It's legal certainty, yes. But it's also confusing when we've also seen announcements from uh, the CFTC that say that uh, some of the tokens and indeed a lot of uh, crypto assets look a lot like commodities as well and not securities. And so what advice do you give to somebody who's thinking, hey, I've got this really cool decentralized idea. Um, I'm going to launch it. I, I want to raise capital through the through a token sale. I think my product can make sense, but I just don't get financial services regulation. Is it a, is it a, uh, am I going to be regulated by the CFTC? Am I going to be regulated by the SEC? Like what are the first things they should think about? I, you know, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, it's still an evolving area. Uh, you know, I think that anybody who is looking to do these uh, in uh, in U.S. markets or offering them to U.S. persons, you know, should certainly review it carefully and you know go you know go take proper legal advice. Uh, you know, my uh, impression is that you know both the SEC and the CFTC have now put the market on notice. We are looking at these. Both have taken enforcement actions. But, you know, it is, it is also possible to access, uh, to go speak to the, you know, blockchain working group at, at the SEC or go speak to, you know, Lab CFTC, which just put out a, a primer, or I guess what you would call a primer mm-hmm. on uh, virtual currencies. And, you know, there, there is the potential for kind of back and forth and they may point out, you know, considerations that you haven't thought about. Um, but I, I really do think the market so is on notice that, that the regulators are, are watching. But, you know, you, you don't have to sit there in the dark. You can take proactive steps. The fact that they're watching doesn't need to be a bad thing, I guess, that there's an opportunity to understand how you would do something and that the U.S. is a place that this could be done. Um, and also, we've talked a number of times on this show about some high-profile scams in the ICO space and that people are losing out and that people um, can inadvertently end up um, having their users being scammed as well as um, advertent scams out there. Um, but but let's just um, switch gears a little bit from from Washington to Silicon Valley. You were recently at the Ethereal conference. Uh, this is the conference organized by the guys at Consensus. Um, and there was a real talk, set of talk there about how regulators are reacting. Um, do you think that innovators on the West Coast and indeed the East Coast are starting to get their head around some of the investor protections, consumer protections that need to be baked into these new decentralized technologies? I, I mentioned scams there and other things. Do you think there's a good reaction coming from some of the innovators in the marketplace? Well, first of all, you know, it was it was great to be uh, back back in, in San Francisco and Bay Area. You know, I went to, to law school out there, and I, I just think, 
you know, San Francisco is a is a great place. It was kind of the run up to Halloween, so there were all sorts of crazies dressed up in in outrageous uh, uh, outfits, which is uh, you know nothing to do with uh, with with blockchain. But ooh, it's a token oh. sale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did not see any uh, Halloween themed cryptocurrency cryptocurrency got, but there there must have been some some out there. But yeah, the Satoshi Nakamoto in in, in person. <laughs> Yeah, but it was, you know, the, the Ethereal Summit was terrific. I mean, uh, Consensus is trying to build this great ecosystem. There was fantastic uh, energy around kind of, uh, you know, blockchain and innovation and, and the arts. And uh, they also did a, a seminar with the World Economic Forum, uh, which has a, a very Im- impressive uh, headquarters uh, out, out there, which they call the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, located in the Presidio, that's a grand-sounding uh, center right there. Yeah, it's it's uh, actually they uh, when when the Presidio uh, was uh, decommissioned as an army base, there were special rules that um, around uh, use of the properties and buildings there f- to promote uh, innovation of, of certain kinds, and so they've actually you know, established a bit of a West Coast uh, beachhead there. Topic for a separate uh, talk. So, you know, I think that there is, you know, I heard, first of all, I heard the, uh, you know, the same kinds of concerns, kind of definitely a lot of excitement and innovation in the space. Um, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of uh, venture capitalists or VCs are, are on the West Coast. And, um, you know, I, I actually heard that their concern, um, many of them uh, were concerned not so much with regulation, but with the the ICOs themselves, how so? So, uh, and and in a way, it is is a little uh, ironic, right? Because uh, venture capitalists have been, you know, talking about disruption and how wonderful disruption is, and all the companies they're they're working with that are going to disrupt, you know, transportation. Software is going to eat the world. Uh, all all these kinds of things, uh, but but ICOs have actually been disrupting the venture capitalists. Uh, in the sense that, you know, the venture capitalists used to be the, the pipeline or sort of the exclusive source of funding for these new and innovative businesses and ideas. And now, in fact, uh, the ICOs have been disintermediating the uh, venture capitalists. And so, you know, some of them, um, well, some of them, I would say, have adapted. I'll come back to them in a minute. But others, uh, you know, uh, make statements like, well, you know, these people – uh, these innovators, uh, they, they're they're not ready to have so much money. This this is too much funding for them to have. You know, they really need you know people like us. And you know, really, the implication is they need the responsible. They adults. need a middleman, is what they need. <laughs> this sounds familiar. I, I guess uh, people who uh, see their value being threatened often uh, will talk up their their value. That's right, and and uh, you know, in a way, and this this might be an, an, a bit of an unfair analogy, but it sort of re- reminded me of what you sort of read in, in history books about, you know, kind of after world after World War II, the colonial powers pointing out, well, these countries which have all these vast natural resources, you know, maybe they're not ready to govern themselves, and they need us there to to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in fact, you know, the the entrepreneurs are you know raising funds directly through through these these ICOs that, you know, without dilution of their own value or sharing that value to the venture capitalist. But I wonder if there's a mixed bag, because we're still in an embryonic state where, yes, there are 
uh, fantastic entrepreneurs who are raising and capturing a lot of that value themselves. But sometimes there are some behaviors which are, you know, there's an uncapped ICO and maybe it's done um, with with just a white paper and the investor protections aren't really thought through. So there's there's definitely the need, I think, for codes of conduct, best practice and, and some sort of um, agglomeration around a set of ideas that we all hold um, as being central. And, and I wonder if you see that happening. Uh, you know, I think that there is value to that. And, and having made that comment about the disruption and that, you know, said some of the venture capitalists don't like it, you know, others have, have really uh, adapted. Um, and, you know, they, they've, they've learned to work with uh, the innovators. And, and you are now uh, already starting to see um, ICOs where there's VC, lead VCs participate in the pre-funding, often get a, you know, good good deal uh, at the early stage or in pre-funding or discounted prices um, and are helping to, to shape them. So, you know, this, this ecosystem is moving so fast. Um, but I, I definitely agree that, that you know, that, that it's still so, so nascent. And I know you guys talked on the show last night about the, you know, developments around the, the Tezos uh, offering. You know, I think that also shows, you know, just some of the challenges of this, this new type of activity. I just wonder if you know, the model of having a foundation in Switzerland is the only way to go or if there are better ways. But that's a, a story for another day. So before I let you go, Jeff, I just want to talk to you about some uh, some comments that happened at the Investor Advisory Committee that the SEC held recently um, between Adam Ludwin and Damon Silvers. Um, we're going to play that right now. Do you have any expertise on the question of what constitutes an investment contract? Yeah. If what, you go, what is your, ask you, what is ask you your expertise? Let me ask you this. What if is your you, expertise? Are you a securities lawyer? Let, let me, no, let me, I, no I'm, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear marketing language. I want to hear law. I, I won't give you marketing I want to hear language. law. Are you a lawyer? Since you're not answering me, I don't think you are. I'm not interested. If you dig I'm not up gold interested. out of the earth, did you have a contract with the earth? Adam, can I suggest something to you? People who come talking about everything is now different marketing investment contracts tend to end up looking rather badly later. If you dig up gold out of the earth, do you have a contract with the earth? If you are engaged in a gold mining enterprise and you sell an interest in it to the public and you don't register it as a security, you've committed a crime. Okay. Here's the point of view I have. I won't use marketing language. I'll use a parable. If we, Adam, you know, Damon, there are, there are I'm, other I'm, questions. I'm, re- I'm deeply, deeply frustrated with a conversation that seems designed to evade the law my, my, in the context of what appears to be obviously a bubble. I think it's a bubble, too. I understand that. Yeah. I understand you've said that. Right? But, but I'm not interested not interested in the slightest in parables or technical jargon. I'm interested in law. And you haven't said a single thing that is legally relevant. So as you can hear, it got a little bit testy between them back and forth. Um, Do you think that the general view of government is one where they just don't trust what's coming? Or do you you think this is just part of the learning process here? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I think it's a really, uh, you know, interesting uh, moment. Um, so, you know, just to put it in perspective, uh, you know, so these uh, advisory committees 
um, you know, the, the members of the advisory committee uh, are generally speaking not actually staff of the SEC. Uh, and at the CFTC, we also had advisory committees as well. These are generally authorized uh, by statute, and it's a way in which uh, regulators can receive input from the public. And this can be uh, kind of public interest groups. This can be industry. Uh, in the case of uh, Damon Silvers, he was from the AFL-CIO. Uh, and so the purpose of the Investor Advisory Committee is is for the SEC to get input from from that community and uh, to to hear from them. And and frankly, you know, it was I thought it was great first of all that the advisory committee wanted to learn more about distributed ledger technology and, and blockchain. So I for one love the drama in this space, Jeff. But uh, I just wondered if you had any more thoughts before I let you go. Yeah, you know, so I think it shows the the, the gap in uh, as as different people are coming to terms with understanding things things about the the space. And you know, Adams Adams comment. You know, about, you know, if, if I, if I mine gold, do I have a contract with the earth? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that people who have been deeply versed in, in the space and sort of get the idea of what Bitcoin mining is, uh, you know, kind of understand that comment. You know, I, I think it could have been in that context, you know, a bit of a provocation, uh, in the sense and of, you know, to engage with someone who I think is, you know, concerned about risk to investors, um, you know, who, who sees, uh, you know, what may be a bit of a bubble where people are going to lose a lot of money and wondering is, is there a contract? Is somebody responsible if everything goes wrong? And, you know, I think this notion that, the, of again, of the decentralized network where there's no, you know, central person responsible, where there's kind of nobody responsible for something, you know, I think that's a very new concept for, for people to come to terms with. And I think regulators are starting to kind of learn about, you know, who is responsible in different contexts. Uh, and then, you know, in an ICO, you have the people who are the issuers, whereas with the cryptocurrencies, you know, there really is nobody responsible in most cases because of the distributed nature. And so I think unpacking that for people who are still learning about the space and trying to make sense of it through kind of more traditional lenses is an important part of the education process. When you're in this subject, as long as we have been, you forget that a lot of people are still new to it. And in fact, the overwhelming majority of people are still new to this subject. And the idea that a crypto asset can exist and nobody could have created it, it just came from software, is still a still a pretty crazy idea. Uh, So Jeff, where can people find out more about you and what it is you do. Yeah, sure. Uh, check out my website, uh, www.bandmanadvisors.com. Follow me on Twitter at Bandman Jeff or connect to me on uh, LinkedIn. By all means, do it. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you very much for having me. A big thank you to our guests, Stephen, Jeff, and of course, my regular co-host, Colin G. Platt. Colin G. Platt, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Leave us a review. Leave a review for Colin, for Hoops. He's traveling around the world. Leave a review for Stephen Pally and his wonderful use of expletives. Leave us a review for all sorts. And spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your colleagues. Uh, tell everybody to listen. Just, just make them listen. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.